privilege of being able to know it and to know it deeply and to study it, have it become a part of our lives. And we know that that takes a ministry of your spirit for that to happen. So we pray that as we study tonight that your spirit would be very active corporately and individually and personally in each one of our lives, taking the book of Job off of the printed page and giving it a living place in our life, which is your intent. And we look to you for that, Lord, eager for it, asking you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening. Please be seated. Job chapter 2 this evening in our journey through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And just wave to them and they'll get you a Bible into your hands and it'll be marked to the Book of Job, chapter 2, and uh, you can read along with us tonight as we're also teaching the Word of God. And as always, if you don't own a Bible, then feel free to take that one as a gift uh, from the Lord. We remember last week as we began in kind of an introduction of the book of Job, God's assessment of Job. And uh, he spoke to Satan and said, If you considered my servant Job, there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man one who fears God and shuns evil. And so God pointed Job out to uh, the devil. He didn't need to do it, and he wasn't doing it for that purpose. The devil was quite familiar with Job. And uh, as, as Satan is, spoke of himself in that chapter, and he'll declare it of himself in this chapter tonight, he goes to and fro throughout the whole earth. And uh, Peter tells us, seeking whom he may devour. But the idea was in Old Testament imagery is that when you walked through the land, what you walked through was yours. You walked through it because it was yours. There's no trespassing on your own property. So the world belongs to the devil. It's been redeemed by Jesus, but he hasn't taken possession of it yet. That's a different sermon. I don't want to get bogged down there. But the idea is, is that he has dominion on the earth. He rules here. This is, he is the God of this age or the God of this world, as the Bible uh, teaches. And so when the devil sees a different kind of life that isn't, has broken away from his kingdom, uh, his kind of rulership, and has uh, in rebellion to the devil's kingdom in order to become a part of God's kingdom, well, the devil's going to notice that. He notices exceptions. Uh, in the world, and every Christian is an exception as a result, and so he's familiar with our lives. And so God pointed out Job to him, and, and Satan made the accusation that was an accusation both against Job and God, and that is the reason that this man follows you is because you bless him. No one will walk with you, and no one will serve you and obey you for the relationship, for you. They do it for the blessings. And, and that was the accusation that was made. And God allowed Job to put, uh, allowed Satan to put Job's faith and uh, his priorities, the devil's kind of thesis here, uh, to the test and said, all right, go ahead and, and you can attack Job and, and, and you can do anything you want to him short of touching him physically or taking his life. And so uh, Satan did exactly that. And at the end of it, Job's faith remained strong. And he defied the theory of Satan that the only reason that people walk with God is not for God, not for the relationship or for the things we can get from God. And you can believe that all of the angelic realm in heaven was watching how Job was going to respond to all of this. And when they saw it, Satan was discredited and disproved 
and the whole universe by a single life. And that was what this was all about. And then we pick it up kind of in chapter two uh, of the second chapter of things here a little bit on the devil's attack and this whole thing that's going on between God and the devil. And we're told again, there was a day when the sons of God, the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, where do you come from? So this is identical to the first time. Where do you come from? Satan answered, and he said to the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. It's mine. I do what I want, you know. Uh, And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He knows he's kind of rubbing in a little bit here. Um, Have you considered my servant Job that there is a sanctified sense of rubbing it in, by the way? Have you considered, my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And still, here he drives home the point. You did what you did to him, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So he basically says to the devil, what you believe about mankind, that no one will walk with me, follow me, obey me for the relationship. They don't value the relationship. They value what I have in my pockets. Um, that's been disproven by at least one man here by Joe. Well, Satan isn't done. So he answered the Lord and he said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And, and so the second accusation is, is, well, of course he's going to serve you when you bless him with kind of perfect health, but you allow his health to be taken away from him, and he will curse you to his face. He doesn't really love you. He loves the health that you bring into his life. Take it away, and, and, and he'll curse you, and he'll stop uh, following you. And so uh, that was his proposition, and the idea was even though he'd gotten a black eye on the earlier uh, proposition, the, I- the idea that he was making is, sure, there was the loss of all of his, uh, pos- his possessions and his position and even the death of his children. And as hard as all of that is, was the devil is saying, it doesn't compare with when you take a human being and put their own life on the line. And that's where you really find out what is in a man or a woman's heart, is when uh, they are right there in that moment, and, and it will cost them their life to remain faithful to you. And so the devil is kind of saying to God, uh, listen, as hard as this first blow was against Job, uh, as long as he's alive and he has health, he can still start another family. He can still start another business. He still has the hope and the opportunity to uh, amass some kind of, uh, of a living and prosperity and, and all. And, and so, but a man will do whatever he has to do in order to save his own, own life and his own, his own health and all. Every man has a price, and in one sense, every man has the same price. And that price is his life. And so this is what uh, the devil proposes. Give me one more crack at him and I will break him. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. You can do whatever you want to him physically, but you cannot take his life. And so Satan cannot indiscriminately go throughout the world 
and take the life of a child of God. And so he has limitations that he has to uh, work within and in the specifics of God's work in our life. And, and this is the limitation that was placed upon him. But I'll tell you, the devil, just like the first time, he, he takes it all the way to the very edge. It wasn't like, well, I don't, really don't want to ruin Job's day. Um, life is hard. The devil is very interested in ruining our days and ruining our lives. And, and so he's going to take this opportunity to just pile on. And so he went out from the presence of the Lord and he struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. I don't know how many of don't no need to shout out how many of you have ever had just one boil. Imagine having your whole body covered with boils. I mean, how do you stand the top of his head to the bottom of his feet? How do you stand on boils? How do you sit? How do you lay down? How do you move? You know, it's just it, it's it is a the a kind of the concentration of a chronic pain situation that's been introduced into his life. And one of the hardest trials anyone will ever face in this life is a life of, of severe chronic pain. And so that's what the devil does to him here. It's evident that these sores, whatever he has, that they are an oozing kind of uh, ulcerated uh, sore. And so Job is in this is the condition that the devil attacks him with throughout the book of Job. We're going to be given more and more insight to uh, the physical condition of Job. So we've got uh, inflamed, ulcerated sores. We're seeing verse eight in a moment that they, somehow they're itching. He scrapes them either because of the oozing of the pus or because uh, in order to itch them, loss of appetite later in chapter three, suffering depression as a result of whatever this affliction was, loss of strength, chapter six. Uh, in chapter seven, we find out that ultimately there were worms that were living in the boils, having difficulty breathing, chapter nine, chapter 19. He speaks of his breath, a foul breath as a result of it, loss of weight, chapter 19, continual pain, restlessness, inability to sleep, as you might imagine, and uh, blackened skin, chapter 30, peeling skin, fever, uh, chapter 30. So here we t in verse eight. We read about what his life has been reduced to in very short order. He took for himself a piece of broken pottery, a pot shirt, with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of ashes. And so ashes, to sit in the midst of ashes, what, that's, that's talking about the dump in those days. So in those days, they would take their garbage out to these garbage pits that would be on the edge of a city, and the fires would just continually burn. They'd be fed all of the time. They would continually burn, and so as a result, there would always be ashes. So he's lost everything. He's, and we're not talking about he doesn't call nationwide or all state to send out a claims agent or something like that. There's no insurance in those days. He's lost everything, his home, the whole deal. And so he's sitting in ashes at the... At the town dump, he goes from being the most prominent man in the East in just a very short uh, period of time. He's covered with ulcerated sores. He's lost everything. And his lone comfort is a piece of broken pottery that he can scrape his body with. It's the only thing that brings him any kind of comfort uh, at, at the moment. And so this is what his life has been reduced to, as if it couldn't get worse. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity, curse God, and die? Well, he probably didn't need that um, at the moment. 
So she's telling him, you know, forget your uh, integrity. Quit being a fanatic about God. Abandon your relationship with God. Do something to him so that he'll get angry enough with you to kill you. That's what she's telling. And when she says, curse God and die, that's the very thing that the devil is trying to get Job to do in this whole kind of battle related to God's reputation and our reputation as children of God and our commitment to the relationship. And so she comes in and she is she is really uh, right in line with what the devil is trying to do to break Job. And she certainly isn't uh, any help here at all. And she certainly recognizes that Job is being very God honoring in his response here that he isn't willing to curse God and he isn't willing to blame God in any of this. And so this is what she's feeling. And so this is what she says. Now, you know, you, you can look at her sympathetically um, and say, well, she lost 10 children just like Job did in the first strike of the devil. And so here's a great loss. Here is this husband that she loves. She has watched him reduced to what he is in front of her and a situation of chronic pain and all. And she just, as she saw him enduring the pain, uh, she looks at it and says, this is just going to result in a long, slow, painful death. And so maybe you can do something to get God to, you know, kind of smite you and put you out of your misery uh, immediately. So that was her recommendation. And uh, she's absolutely wrong here. Uh, There are some who uh, go so far as to suggest that uh, when uh, Satan uh, smote uh, Job's children and killed the seven sons and three daughters, that he left her alive uh, for a reason, Uh, knowing that kind of a lack of spirituality in her life, that she would not be an asset spiritually to Job and that uh, she would kind of become, again, an asset in in Satan trying uh, to break him. So. She, you know, she'd make life more difficult for him by being alive rather than being dead. Well, I wouldn't really go that far, but sometimes Satan can use people that are close to us at times like that, and they can say the wrong thing, and uh, and she certainly said the wrong thing. So what this verse 9 does here is it makes us realize that Job is all alone in the world, just him and God. So he's lost everything. And then now when you would want a spouse, a husband or a wife to come alongside you and be the, the one place that you can count on for spiritual encouragement in the depth of a trial, she fails the test here. And, and so he's all alone, spiritually speaking, in the world. There's no mutual comfort coming from his uh, wife uh, at all. So it's the, we sing the old song, though none go with me, still I will follow. That's Job's condition. In, in the situation. And then Job's response, verse 10, he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we not accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? And all these things Job did not sin with his lips. And so again, um, he takes and he proves Satan's accusation against not only Job, but against God's people through the ages to be absolutely uh, false. People are committed to God. They have a relationship with God based upon who God is, no matter what blessings or bless- blessings we don't have in our lives and whatever it costs us to be able to walk with him. That's very, he's very, very tactful, and you would expect this from a, a godly man like Job. He doesn't uh, call her a fool. 
he just tells her that she's speaking as one of the foolish women uh, speak. And so he's just saying, you're talking like somebody who is foolish. And he's not talking about her intellect. He's talking about her spiritually. And so she is tempting him to violate his own integrity and to permanently mar his so what we could call his Christian witness and his reputation for loving God and just abandon your relationship uh, with God. And so he posed the question to her, shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? That's a very key um, understanding of life that Job possessed that helps him stand in the situation. Anybody that comes becomes a Christian, becomes a child of God, with the idea that now because I am a child of God, I will never face difficulty, um, is someone who is bringing an expectation to the Christian life that is going to be soon uh, very, very disappointed related to that. And sometimes people do that. And you even sometimes you hear um, altar calls given for people to come to know the Lord. And it's almost like you'll never have a problem again and we'll order you your lazy boy recliner and all meals will be catered from now on right to where you are. You'll never have to leave the chair. It's the life of leisure and just one blessing after another and giving way to heaven itself. And, and, but that's not the expectation that, that he had. The world's a fallen world. And even though we know the Lord and we love the Lord, uh, fallenness is going to happen to us. It's just the way that it is. And so car wrecks happen, cancer happens, heart attacks happen, uh, financial reversals happen, job losses happen. All kinds of things happen in the fallenness of the world. We're not immune to any of those things. And so there's the recognition that, yes, uh, God is going to, uh, we're going to accept good from God, but also adversity is going to come uh, into our life. We're not going to be immune to that and spared difficulty or suffering just because we're a Christian. Jesus said, these words I've spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. He said, in the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And in fact, it is the Christian life that is the harder life than anyone else's life in some respects. In many respects, it isn't because of the hope that we have and the purpose and all of these infinitely priceless things that we have because of, of our relationship with God. But we face all of the things that everybody else in the world faces, whether they know God or they don't know God. But then we face an entire um, level of, of other problems that those that don't know God don't face. Persecution for our faith. Uh, rejection by family members and friends for our faith. A um, intensity of spiritual warfare against us uh, that even those that don't know the Lord don't oftentimes experience because of our faith in the Lord. And so it isn't the easiest life. It is the greatest life. But it isn't the easiest life, and he didn't bring that expectation that it's only going to always be blessings from God and we'll never experience any kind of adversity. And so Job again didn't sin with his mouth, and again all of the whole angelic host, both fallen and, and uh, faithful angels, were watching to see 
uh, how Job would respond to this in the light of the devil's accusation. And against, again, the devil received a black eye. Uh, he was wrong. And so it, it, we're told in verse 11, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this averse, adversity that had come upon them, each one of them came from his own place. And now they're listed by name, three of them. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, shortest man in the Bible, right there. I couldn't help myself. I'm ashamed that I said it. Some of you will leave and that will be the only thing you remember about the entire evening, which troubles me even more. And then so far, uh, the name Namathite, and for they had made an appointment together to come and to mourn with him and to comfort Job. And so they heard about the problems that he had. They then came to him, and their purpose was the purpose of, of comforting uh, Job. So they come a great, great distance to be a comfort and to be a help to him. We've got to give them credit where credit is due. There's not a lot of credit to give them. Ultimately, we'll want to strangle each one of them before we're through. But uh, they did come a great distance. They heard there were a lot of people that should have come to Job to comfort him, to take care of him, and make sure that he was situated who did not do it. But give these three guys credit that they did, uh, they did uh, do it. They would have been much better in just showing up and not saying anything because ultimately as soon as they open their mouths, they're going to become a source of, of great pain for Job, uh, accusing him of being a hypocrite and a secret sinner and all these uh, kind of things. But the fact that they did come, that was very, very commendable. Their reaction upon seeing Job is interesting in verse 12. And when they raise their eyes from afar, they see Job from a distance. He's sitting by the garbage dump and he and he's sitting there. They see him from the distance and they have heard the news. They've heard about the affliction, heard about everything. So they had some time to prepare themselves for the sight of Job. Nothing could have prepared them them for what they were going to see when they saw Job. And when they see Job, they just become undone emotionally. All these men are older than Job, as we'll see a little bit later in the book. These are strong men. They look at, at, at him, take one look at him. They couldn't even recognize him because of what he had become physically under this physical affliction that he had, covered with the boils and the sores and the pus and the worms and the whole deal. And when they saw him, they lifted up their voices and wept. It was involuntary. You think about that. So again, God is giving us some great insight into the difficulty of the trial that Job was in. I mean, imagine walking into a hospital room or walking into someone's home, seeing someone that is ill, and you are determined to maintain your composure and the whole thing, and you look at them, and you cannot help but just begin to burst into tears at what it is that you see, from what you knew of this person at what time, one time, and then what they are right now. Now, on the one hand, that had to be, like, alarming to Job. Hey, Job, you look great, you know. <laughs> uh, Sometimes you want to hear that kind of a thing. But I think the fact that when they saw, and emotionally this is how they responded, I think it probably was a comfort to Job. It was like, all right, somebody gets it, that what I'm in the middle of is unspeakably difficult. And I think that their tears was a comfort to him. The Bible says to laugh with those who laugh, rejoice with those who rejoice, and that also to weep with those who weep. 
There's something that gets communicated. Prayer, uh, tears uh, are, are a language, and, and they communicate. And I think that personally that this was a, a great uh, comfort uh, to him and just expressing their grief for him, and their grief was uh, very, very real. And so they lifted up their voices, they began to weep, and each one of them then they tore their, their robe and they sprinkled dust on their head toward heaven. And so it is the, this was an expression of their grief, and their heart is torn in two. They tear the robe to express that as they look at the pain that he's in and, and, and all. And they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Now, this is commendable as well. So for seven days and seven nights, they camp out at the dump. These are all men of, of tremendous resources. They don't go and uh, find a room somewhere, a local inn. They don't abandon him. This is where our friend is. This is where he needs to be because of his situation. And there's some kind of comfort here when maybe the ash used to dry the sores or I don't know what. And so for seven days and seven nights, they come down to his, his level of things to maintain a uh, presence with him. And so no one spoke to him. And, and uh, the reason that they didn't speak to him is in the custom of that day, when you would come and visit someone who was in great trial in the midst of great grief, you would come in, sit down with them, and you would never break the silence. You were not allowed to break the silence or say the first thing. They would always come into that situation Wait for the person who was in the situation of difficulty to break the silence, and then you were free to speak. And so they're being a cordial related to the custom of the day. And as long it appears that as long as Job was going to remain silent, you think about that. He just he can't even put into words where where he is. He's trying to process all of it. He's got men that he knows and he can talk to, and for seven days he can't bring himself to say anything. And, and so they're waiting for him to express himself. I like Cam, what Campbell Morgan has said about this kind of uh, situation. He said, there, that is the great proof of friendship, the ability to say nothing. And uh, so they said nothing for those seven days. And uh, unfortunately, Joe will open his mouth. Good for him. But um, it would have been best, ultimately, that they had uh, never come. And that's one of the great lessons of, of the book is what to say and what not to say to people in, in this uh, kind of a crisis or anything re you know, remotely approaching this level of difficulty. And so Job, ultimately, in chapter 3, he opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. And Job spoke and he said, May the day perish on which I was born. He says, this is the first thing out of his mouth. I wish I had never been born. And he meant it. Again, that's the depth of the trial that he is in. That's how hard it was. Basically, what he's, he's communicating here in chapter 3 is he says these things, and as God records it for us, 
is that we read, you know, sometimes you can just read through this and have a nice cup of coffee in the morning and you're reading through devotional and now we're in the book of Job and just reading through the whole thing. And, and then we look and uh, Job was faithful and good for him and, and right on through. But here we're going to see that, and, and God is revealing for us, that yes, he was faithful to God, but it doesn't mean that he didn't pay an enormous price emotionally and mentally and physically to remain faithful to God. So it wasn't that people would just look and say, oh, that was a snap for him just to be faithful to God in that situation. God wants us to know that it cost him plenty to do that. And so that's what's being communicated here in in chapter three. He paid a great price to remain faithful. And then he not only wishes that the day would perish in which he was born. He goes on and says in in verse 3, and the night in which it was said, a male child is conceived. So he curses the night of his conception. So here Job believes that life begins at conception, and then you just got a nine-month incubation while somebody's getting ready for the atmosphere. But life has begun, and so he rude the day and lamented the the night that he was even conceived in his mother's womb. He said, may the day be darkness. May it never even be a day in human history. May God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on that night of my conception. May the blackness of the day terrify it. For as for the night, that night, my may darkness seize it. May it not rejoice among the days of the year. May it not come into the number of the months. Oh, may uh, that night be barren that no conception occurred. May no joyful shout come into it. And may those uh, may those curse it who cursed the day, those who are ready to arouse Leviathan. May the stars of its morning be dark. May it look for light but have none and not see the dawning of the day. And so he's talking there about a uh, in those days when you were going to arouse Leviathan. It was kind of um, he's using a cultural expression of the day and they had. Uh, these kind of um, enchanters in that time who would kind of do these incantations and these things to arouse Leviathan, which was supposed to be a seven-headed kind of dragon. And if you could arouse Leviathan, then there would be an eclipse of the sun and the moon, and, and it would be like the day didn't exist. And so basically he's using kind of a cultural reference to say, I wish that the enchanters had done their thing. He's not saying that he believes in it, that they had done their thing on that night, and that night never existed in human history. This is the level of the pain that he that he found himself uh, in because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb nor hide sorrow from my, from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? And so here he longs for the fact that he had died in childbirth. Birth. So this isn't just kind of a you know poetic language and this kind of a thing. This is someone who is in a trial that is so deep and so difficult that he looks at it and says, if I, if I knew life was going to contain what is a part of my life right now, I would much rather have died during childbirth and never have experienced life at all. Why didn't I, did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? 
Wider than these receive me, that his, his mother's knees as the baby would be given to him, or why did the breast that I should nurse? For now I would have lain still and been quiet, I would have been asleep, and then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who, build ruins, who built ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. And so, uh, because if he had died during childbirth, then again it would have been better than living and facing what it was that he was facing right now. And then he goes on to declare that he wishes that he had been uh, stillborn or miscarried and never seen life. Or why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? And there the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners rest together, and they do not hear the voice of the oppressor. The small and the great are there, and the servant is free from his master. And then he goes on in verse 20, and he asks the question of basically, why is life given to a man only to uh, experience in life Things that makes him wish he were dead. And, and as, a, as I'm reading through these things, uh, we're, not, we're not talking about something from three, four, five thousand years ago. These are things that God's people, when we face certain things in life, that the waters can be so deep that there can be, it's real to say, I, I wish I'd never been born. If I knew that life was going to turn into what it's turned into right now. So all this is real. And he's a man of faith. He's trusting in God. But he's just expressing the depth and the difficulty of the trial that he finds himself in the middle of. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul? Who come along for death, but it does, uh, who long for death, but it does not come and search for it more than hidden treasures. So his idea was, why are we allowed to be born into a world when there is the knowledge that uh, suffering is going to come to an individual life that will make them wish they had never been born and where a person will take and long for death more than uh, you know, finding buried treasure or in the illustration of the day to win the lottery or something. To, you know, you value it more than anything in life. And, and he longed to die. Who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? And, and the idea of God hedging him in is, is that he doesn't understand why God is keeping him alive for nothing. Why, God, do you keep me separated from death? Of course, suicide is not an option for a child of God. I don't say that if a person commits suicide that they don't go to heaven. And there are a lot of people that teach that thing and they add all kinds of problems to the lives of survivors. A person can be born again on their way to heaven and they mishandle and are overwhelmed by the trial and they don't take in the Lord's resources. And it doesn't mean that I'm minimizing the difficulty of a trial. They lose perspective and then they will take their life. But salvation is salvation. And to have everlasting life is to have everlasting life. And to take one's life, it is not on the table. It's not an option for us. All right. Everybody understand that? 
Okay, so, but if a person does that, it doesn't mean that their salvation is in jeopardy. But he understands accurately that he cannot take his life. His life belongs to God, and God is free to use it how he sees fit. But he's wondering, God, why do you keep me alive when it doesn't, it looks like the easiest thing and the best thing for me and everyone else is that I would die and I long to die. So you add this to kind of the prayers that God chooses to ignore in our lives. That's why we always pray in Jesus' name or we pray God willing related to our prayers because we can pray things to God that are very ill-advised and very um, uh, ill-informed. God's got what God is up to here. Job has no idea what he is up to. His, he has no idea in the year 2012 we're going to be sitting in a room studying this chapter of his life. He has no idea the hope and the encouragement and the perspective that his life is going to bring to God's people for thousands of years. And he has no idea that the plans that God has for him on the other side of the greatness of the trial, that God does not intend this trial to end in death, but to end in blessing, as hard as the trial is. So there's a lot that he doesn't know, but he's verbalizing these things. He's just pouring out his heart. He's lamenting. He's just letting his three friends know who he still thinks are his friends, how he's feeling, and he's just wanting to vent and communicate uh, in a spiritually safe environment, how it is that, that he's feeling. But this is real. This is a place where, and he's, and he's not the last one. I, probably a lot of us in this room have sat with someone that we've loved on their deathbed, and we wonder, why is this taking so long? Why does God allow their life to continue for weeks or for months when it, it looks like the wise thing would be to have him just step in and end it at the moment? We don't know the whys. Um, we know that God could do that effortlessly, and if he doesn't, then there's a reason for that. And, and so, but these are the things that he's processing. And he says, for my sighing comes before I eat and my groanings pour out like water. I mean, he, he's lost his appetite. Every move that he makes, every thought that he has produces a groan that just is poor. It's a, it's a constant groan coming out of his body because of the suffering he's in. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me and what I dreaded has happened to me. And I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest for trouble comes. So when he talks there in verse 25 about what he greatly feared had come upon him and what I dreaded has happened to me. I've, one time I listened to a faith teacher uh, speak about the fact that this is why the trial uh, came into his life. He lacked faith. So here he is. He confesses fear, and fear was the dominant influence in his life. And so he produced his own reality on the basis of fear and not on the basis of faith. And so that's what you get when you walk by fear and not by faith. And so this whole big thing, you know, and you just say, Man, I'd like to see you covered with boils. Not that I'd like to see you covered with boils, but see how well you do in that uh, kind of a situation. And, but basically what Job is saying is this. Is it doesn't matter. Here he's the richest man in the whole area of the East. He's got perfect health. He's got a perfect family. He's got a great business. He's got, you just look and you say, that guy is the picture 
of security in all of life. But Job knew better than that. And he knew even when he had everything that in the fallenness of this world, there is nothing secure about it. Everything can be lost in a day. And, and, and it certainly can be lost in a day through death. Everything in life can be lost in an instant except what's eternal, our personal relationship with the Lord. So he had this recognition that while he was in the middle of all of those blessings, he realized this is a fallen place. Things can turn on a dime. And here he has seen that very thing happen in his life. The only security in life is a relationship with God. Godliness with contentment is great gain, is how Paul put it by the Holy Spirit. Having a relationship with God and whatever he decides to add materially to our lives, um, in addition to that relationship, then having that, that's a rich person in life. And so this is what he's talking about here, and despite what, what people say. It's fascinating, too, I think, that when you look at Job's trial here, and remember he predates uh, the law of Moses, most likely, and uh, again, the time of Abraham and all. And you see this this whole first three chapters of the book of Job are really a great condemnation of this so-called uh, health and wealth gospel, this prosperity gospel, that if we just have enough faith uh, in God, if we just have enough of a close enough relationship with God, we will always know material prosperity and we will always know uh, physical health. And it isn't true. And God can be up to a lot of different things. Sometimes his glory can be revealed to the world by blessing us with perfect health. Uh, or his glory can be shown by having us have something that that where we continue to walk with him because of the relationship, just like Job, and not with, you know, the blessings that he brings into our life, the material blessings, and that's a great witness to everyone around us. So there's a lot of things that are in play. I remember when I was a brand-new Christian, I was a little more argumentative in those days. All right, I was all very argumentative. Um, but I remember when, when I was a new Christian and my first kind of exposure to that whole prosperity thing. If you always do this, you have enough faith, and it will always translate uh, in, into this kind of thing. And I thought to myself, well, what about the book of Job? I mean, what about you know, him on this? And, and uh, so there was a, I had picked up a tract or some kind of an article or something related to this doctrine and had a telephone number, so I called the number. And uh, I said, listen, I see that you teach that this will always happen. And, you know, what about, um, you know, Paul telling Timothy, take a little bit of wine for your constant stomach problems or infirmity. And what about Job and this kind of thing? And and so and it was a woman. And so she's telling me this and that. And, and I finally I said, well, how in the world do you people die? She says, we just give up the spirit and we die. I got off of the phone thing and I thought to myself, I'd like to have some documentation of how many Christians in the Word of Faith movement actually go to heaven by lying down in perfect health and abundant prosperity and they decide to give up their spirit and go to heaven. I dare say that that doesn't happen very often, if ever. And so I just want to make the point that this whole kind of guilt got you trip.
surrounding faith that um, that you know to stay free of of that uh, that that kind of thing, and it, it violates uh, the teaching of of scripture and all. We when God calls us, and if He entrusts this kind of a trial to us, as we saw last week, He will give us the grace to successfully navigate that trial or a way of escape. For Job, it was going to be the grace to successfully navigate the trial. He will always do that. But he never asks us to live by blind faith. And so we look and say, is it all darkness? Is there nothing that we can know if God puts us in this kind of a trial? Do we have no instruction that is given to us? We do. God may not explain all of the details about why the circumstances of our life are the way that they are, but he has written an entire book about himself and about what we can know about God and how we're to conduct ourselves in times of trial and times of prosperity and times of all kinds of different things, how to conduct ourselves. So there's a lot that we can know about God and how to conduct ourselves at times like this. So this is why it's important when great trials come into our life that we do go to First and Second Peter, which were written to suffering Christians, that we do go to the book of James, that we do go to the book of Job, we do go to the Psalms, very experiential books that speak about people in difficulty and expressing their relationship with God and hearing God's answer uh, to them. So we're not in difficulty blind or without revelation from God. We just may not know the specifics of the big picture of what's going on in the specifics of the trial that we're in at the moment. What we can know is that God loves us and that and that he is going to work this together for good in in some way and either in further conforming us into the image of Christ or that it is accomplished something through our lives to allow the kingdom of God to be seen through our lives. Someone has said that the kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom that is made visible by the obedience of God's people. And that's flat out truth about things. So here's this kingdom of God that is largely invisible in the world so often. But every time we obey God, we continue with God and continue to walk with him, his kingdom becomes visible in that situation, in that room, in that relationship, and no one can deny it. There's another kingdom besides God's, uh, the devil's kingdom that exists in the world. And so God can be up to a lot of different things, but we'll stop here in chapter three uh, tonight before things get very, very, very dismal in terms of Job's friends opening their mouth. You, I, I don't, uh, there are three more clueless people in the history, well, other than me, of the world in terms of how to conduct themselves and uh, than these three in terms of what they speak. And I, I just, you know, to kind of prime the pump, again, I'm going to be gone for a couple of weeks, but as we head toward this, 
Uh, sometimes we can look at this and say, wow, chapters 4 through 31 are these three friends just continually accusing Job of the fact that he is in the trial that he's in because there's sin in his life, secret sin, and because he's a secret hypocrite. And there's nothing true about that at all. And you just listen and you listen and you listen to it. And over and over and over again, after like about five chapters, your eyes glaze and you say, all right, I want, I'm done with the book. I, I either have to stop reading this or I want to kill these people or I'm going to hate them when I see them in heaven. But here we've got like 26 chapters, 27 chapters of this thing, because God is going to use this next section of the book of Job to drive home in a way that is just drives it so deep in our lives on how to uh, be appropriate in these kind of situations in people's lives, not how not to come to wrong conclusions and do more harm than good. And it is a very, very valuable uh, education. The book of Job says a lot of good things in our, in our lives. Well, this evening we want to partake uh, of the Lord's Supper, and I ask that you would turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 